in life, there are many questions that go unanswered. Like, do you really need motivation to randomly start wearing a kilt? Of your Samuel L. Jackson, you absolutely do not. Especially not when you're trying to peddle drugs to everyone in Manchester. It's time to prove that this flick isn't Breaking Bad because Formula 51 is not that bad. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this edition of It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A grades in B movies. And once again, back on the show, my wife, Carrie. Carrie, how are you doing today? I'm great and I'm back. That's because you just woke up from a nap. <laughs> you're, you're good. To our, to our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> right? No, no. It's, it's right there. <laughs> uh, full disclaimer. My wife, my lovely wife, had about a two hour nap before we started recording. So I'm kind of jelly. What you sucking up for? I I, I want a nap. <laughs> I want a nap. We want naps. We want our naps now. Come to my house. <laughs> Come to my house. Naps. Take naps. But what we are not napping on is the movie we're talking about today, and that is Formula Fifty One. Or for some people, this is the Fifty First State because this film has two titles. Now, Carrie, you are a fan of one Mr. Samuel L. Jackson. So when we were going through his filmography and we realized that this movie qualified for the show, your initial reaction was... Wow. <laughs> okay. Yes. Huge Sam Jackson fan. Even bigger fan of Formula 51. <laughs> as much as I love my man Sam Jackson. Bad mother. Uh, <laughs> We're going to swear a lot in this show. So, um, so uh, initial apologies to our children who occasionally listens to the show. And every time they hear a beep, our oldest looks at us and goes, did you guys swear again? We're like, yeah, yeah, we did. The swear police will be out in full force on this one. Kids, just just hit stop right now. Go, look, go back and listen to the Smurfs episode. All right, that's a, that's a little bit safer for you. Even though we say Smurf a lot in that one, though. Mm. And we know that Smurf is, you know... Smurf is kind of like the frack from Battlestar Galactica. You know what they're saying. They're just not saying it, but they're saying it. It works for all, but here we're talking about something else that's tiny and blue. The pills. <laughs> Ooh, nice. The pills. <laughs> uh, but before we get into this movie, it is time to take Formula 51 and trailerize it. The recipe for Formula 51. A simple mix of one badass chemist named Elmo looking to tickle your drug fancy, a hooligan with a heart of gold, and a assassin who can go from murderous to sweet in less than 51 seconds, and an inept crime boss who talks about himself in the third person so much, you wonder if there isn't a real crime boss somewhere else waiting to pop up. Add in all the Guy Ritchie cast-off characters you can, and the heartwarming lesson that drugs are apparently cool. And you have a recipe for success. Samuel L. Jackson stars in Formula 51, or the 51st State, or whatever they're calling it now. Write it all. <laughs> 
we have to clarify that when this movie originally came out, it was called The 51st State in the UK, but they changed the name to Formula 51 for the US audience and for the North American audience because 51st State doesn't kind of go over too well in America. But either way, we are talking about one hell of a film starring Samuel L. Jackson Emily Mortimer, who you might remember from Mary Poppins Returns, or the voice of Holly Shiftwell in Cars 2, Robert Carlyle, Meatloaf, and I'm going to apologize in advance if I mess up this name, but Reese Eifens. Just call him Daddy Lovegood. <laughs> no, no, we, we don't call anyone Daddy. No, we, <laughs> we don't call anyone Daddy on this podcast. No, no, and no, unless our kids are on. They can call call me daddy, and that's those are the only people who get away with calling anyone on this show daddy. Papa Lovegood. I'm I'm down with that. Also, Papa Lovegood sounds like a discarded Motley Crue song. So, <laughs> <laughs> it was directed by Ronnie Yu, and if you if you're not as familiar with his uh, filmography as a director, all you have to do is go watch The Bride of Chucky or Freddy versus Jason, and I don't know about you. I actually really enjoyed Freddy versus Jason. It was just it just brought so much fun to both those franchises. Um, it was a fresh take on it, and they had been waiting. It, it, that film had had gone through so much developmental hell in order to be able to get to be made. Ronnie, you handled that I think very perfectly. However, this was almost not directed by Ronnie Yu, because this movie was supposed to be the directorial debut of one Mr. Tim Roth. He <gasps> was supposed to be in the director's chair for this one, but that didn't happen. Instead, we got Ronnie Yu, and I, and I think he handled it very, very well. Um, it was written by... <laughs> you're still in shock. Oh, now I am curious. I I would have loved to have seen A Tim what Roth that would have looked like. Formula 51. Ooh. You're, you're, you're picturing it now, too. You're picturing him in the chair. Yeah. I, I want to visit that alternate universe one day. <laughs> in the multiverse of cinema, at some point, Tim Roth actually directed this film. So which of the 51 states Or multiverses. Is that, um, that, that is the when, Tim Roth directed. That, that is when you hit your pants level. <laughs> which yes this movie did hit that um it was written by a guy by the name of stel pavlu now i again i do apologize if i mess up these names but as i've mentioned before on the show i am an idiot in a basement with a microphone so you get what you get you get what you pay for okay but mad respect to the screenplay right um uh. here's the thing though this is his only film that he's written the only other work of video that he has actually written was a DVD extra for this movie and it was entitled and I'm, I'm literally reading this who the hell is Stel Pavlu so if all you've if all you've written for film is this movie and a mini doc called who the hell are you um he has written books before and all that but interestingly enough he wrote this in 1994 while he was working at a liquor store. It's almost like the ultimate Tarantino kind of storyline. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. I love it. Now, I wonder what he was selling in the back of the liquor store in order to be able to come up with this script. But regardless of, it was a really, really good script. But it's the only screenplay that he's actually 
written. And there's 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 a long history to this because this film apparently took five years to get the funding to actually make it. So it was written in '94. Um, started to like, get like getting noticed and whatnot, and start to you know get people pushing it in like ninety five, ninety six. So around that train spotting, Tarantino rise to prominence kind of era. But then you got to wait five years to get the funding. So this movie came out in two thousand one. So when you think that from nineteen ninety four back of a liquor store to two thousand one on your cinema screens, that's how long this film took. Now I I want to know more. Mm-hmm. I want to know. The backstory, I, I want to know how he came about getting this script, which, by the way, did I not mention last night, mad props mm-hmm. to the screenplay, because it is so clever, it is so, so well done, and and the twists and the turns are so smart, and well plotted and even though the characters seem a little daft at times <laughs> some do it, yes it um oh my god it's brilliant it's brilliantly daft and i absolutely love it and again would i want to know more i want to know how a cuz he must have at some point connected with tim roth to to have have you know, got him interested on board. I, I want to be a fly on the wall mm-hmm. in, you know, that time frame and find out just, you know, I I, I want to read the, the liner notes. I want... Now, now to put this also into perspective and to blow your mind again. I want more. Uh, you want more blowing of your mind? Bring it. Okay, more blowing. Here it comes. Um, so Ronnie Gu um, hasn't directed much since this film. You know, a couple things here and there, but nothing major. Although apparently he was supposed to be the one to direct Snakes on a Plane. Hmm. You almost had the Formula 51 director helping Samuel L. Jackson deal with these snakes on this plane. Well, that could have only helped that movie. Oh, there was so much that needed to help that movie. But this one, this one is not that bad. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, please, I plead... To the internet world out there, if you have not given this movie its due time, watch it, okay? Continue listening to this podcast, (laughs) but then please do yourself a favor, do me a favor, watch this movie. Now, I will, I am going to say, because this film is, as of recording this podcast, 21 years old since the time it was released, not since the time it was written, Sorry, Stella Pavlou, we're not counting those years. 21 years since it's released. We are going to spoil it. So if you are going to watch this film, hit pause. Like, right now. And come back after you've watched the movie. And welcome back to the show. Hey, hope you enjoyed the film. Um, Now let's talk about the film that we're not, now that we can spoil it for you. The film who must not be spoiled. (laughs) Oh my God, it's the Voldemort of films. I'm dropping Harry Potter references. Oh yes, I am. (laughs) Well, thanks to Re-Siphons. I know. Right? Mind officially blown on that one. But here's the thing though. This film did not do that well at the box office it had a 27 million dollar budget but it only grossed 12.8 million worldwide now to put that into perspective of everything else that was uh, you know that was going on at the time so this 
was released in theaters October 18th, 2002. So apologies on the 2001, but 2002. Um, so it re- it was released and it debuted in the North American domestic box office at 12th. 12th. With a $2.8 million gross. Debuting that week was The Ring at 15 million. So not that, you know, really, I mean, yes, we are talking $2,002 here, but The Ring debuted at number one. In number four, just to put this into perspective, in its 27th week of release was My Big Fat Greek Wedding. But other releases that came out, uh, the movie Abandon came out uh, and debuted at number seven, and of course, Formula 51. Now, that's... North America. In the UK, very different story. So on opening weekend in the UK, which was December 7th, 2001, so it took a while to get to North America, it debuted at number two that uh, that week, behind the fourth week of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, with a million take in the UK. Two very different movies. Mm -hmm. Very, very different movies. Uh, To put it in perspective of how old this film is, in number nine in the UK that week was Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Speaking of drug movies. Um, but And, And you know what? That's what I wanted to say because as much as I'm sitting here loving this film, and I do, and okay, I admit we have the VHS copy. (laughs) Yes, friends, the VHS copy is actually in our possession. However, um, you can still find it on FilmRise. It is uh, available. You know what? Uh, I think there's a YouTube version of the full movie. There's ways to watch this movie. There are ways to watch this movie. But what I was, where I'm going with that is, is it... A, three, a theatrical release movie? Is it a, a, a take your date to the movie? <laughs> if you're taking your date Theaters, to this movie, I, I guarantee you. Well, okay. Not a cinema flick. Let's, let's put it this way. If you take a date, like a first date to this film, and you get a second date, bravo, you found a keeper. That's, that's all I'm going to say <laughs> on I'm that one. And I'm sitting here thinking... That would have been an amazing first date movie. Because bravo, I got a keeper. Thank you kindly. Um, but the critics do not agree. So let me go. Let me do the breakdown here. The tomatometer is at a twenty six percent with an audience score of fifty nine. At Metacritic, it's twenty three percent, and at IMDb, six point three out of ten. So the people like it. The viewers like it. The critics don't. And we talked about this uh, in the past. Is this movie something a critic should watch, really? Let's be honest. You know what? I, it, it depends on the critic. It depends on a certain open-mindedness to, I mean, yeah. Okay. At its core, it is a drug movie. Mm-hmm. It's a drug movie. There are scenes, and even the style in which it's shot is kind of in that vein of hallucinogenic, almost like, you know, you good need, trip, bad trip. Um, you might need some Red Bulls while you're watching this. Okay. But 
it's it's clever. It's fun. It's well written. It's mm-hmm. funny. It is funny. Like <clears throat> the actors did a brilliant job delivering this this screenplay. I want to talk about the screenplay. Before we get to the breakdown, I want to talk about the screenplay. Because as we were watching this, I was acutely aware of our swear word hating children and thinking we might have to turn the volume down because it's a a little sweary. Okay, hate is a harsh word. Dislike. (laughs) Yes. No, no, no. The oldest one hates it. He hates a swear word. Okay. Um, disapproving. And, yes. Yeah. If you ever wondered what your own disapproving look looks like, as you know, as a parent, swear on air, and then have your kid listen to it, and then look at you going, "You said it again, didn't you?" To be fair, I watched this movie with the children in the house on mute with my earbuds in. Yeah. So, so you did the smart thing, and I bring this up because this movie holds a place in history because currently this movie is tied for 85th for most f-bombs dropped in a film ever did you grab my sam jackson book my unauthorized no but however apparently the f-word was dropped in this film 180 times that ties it with Bad Santa 2. Can I just say, though, that... Okay, we're sitting here. We're we're doing the F-bomb count. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't... It's not crass. No. The, and, and the it, use of the word... In... Yes, that's probably going to be picked. <laughs> <laughs> the use of the word is almost as common to the... Um, to the dialogue as to oxygen as at this the, point, <laughs> you know, as saying the, um, it it it's a George Carlin lesson in script writing, basically. It, it is, but it it's so, you know what? I didn't even that wasn't even on my radar. I didn't even feel that it was a much sweary movie. That's because you got trucker mail out there, girl. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to put it into perspective though, because you know a, a lot of comparisons are 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 rightfully so made to the movies of Guy Ritchie and Quentin Tarantino and you can see those influences in this but just for perspective apparently Reservoir Dogs has 269 drops of said word and Pulp Fiction had 265 but while I was doing some research I was fascinated to learn that there was a study done on profanity on film and Samuel Jackson Samuel L. Mother Jackson does not hold the record for most F-bombs in a film. What? He is third on the list. Ooh, who's number one? I'll tell you number two. Is Leonardo DiCaprio. What? (laughs) And number one is... Jonah Hill. I see. I I possibly could have seen Russell Brand up there. No, no. And now, admittedly, those two got to this spot thanks to one film, The Wolf of Wall Street, which actually holds the record for most swears in a single 
film. Like they literally, like rather than breathe air, they breathe. Like that is literally what they do. Huh. But funny enough, though, that this this study went even further, in that Samuel Jackson, on a swears per one thousand words of script, and I would have loved to have watched these people like do this study. Swears per 1,000 words of dialogue. Samuel Jackson sits eighth. Okay, he has clearly done his research, my friends. <laughs> that means that puts him behind Harvey Keitel on the list and just ahead of Ashton Kutcher. And swears per 1,000 words. Jonah Hill, you know, king of the F-bomb, 22.9 swears per 1,000 words of dialogue. Samuel Jackson, 6.9. Math, ladies and gentlemen, math. Now, I'm sure that's probably changing over the time. And if you think about it too, Samuel Jackson probably had um, uh, some clawback on that ratio thanks to the Avengers films because, you know, he got blipped before he could actually swear in Infinity War. So, I mean, that's just not fair. And Star Wars just would not be the same if he was dropping F-bombs. Right? I'm tired of these mother Sith in the mother palace. That's the Star Wars we need. Okay, but he did win on his purple lightsaber. Uh, yes, yes. You are at a whole new level when you get... <laughs> The purple lightsaber. I, I can hear like like venom in the back of my mind going, that is a purple one. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. 
Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. <laughs> so let's get to the breakdown of Formula 51 here. We got to start with Samuel Jackson. I'm going to put this to you. How is Sam J in this one? Oh, my God. I love him. Love him. Love him. Like, as I was mentioning um, before we started recording, everything from his facial expressions after he delivers a line to, um, like, he, he just looked like he was having so much fun with this. Mm-hmm. Like you could tell that this had to have been a fun movie to make. Pretty expensive, I would say. Like, but they I, do a little bit of damage. I, well, I mean, if we're do, if we're doing a damage count, which might be someone else's podcast, I'm sure somewhere down the road. But uh, you know, the thing is, Samuel Jackson, I think, takes a lot of pro, you know pro, uh, projects you know based on his passion for the script. And you know, we kind of saw that with the stories that came out about you know Six in a Plane, how. You know, he wasn't going to do the movie unless it was actually called Snakes on a Plane. Um, And I get the feeling that this movie kind of fits that mold because he just had so, so much when you're right. It's just, you know, A, here he is walking around with golf clubs and a kilt. Why? Fuck you. That's why. That's literally. Exactly. The costuming. Right. I mean, even when they show a young. Elroy McElroy. Elmo. Elmo McElroy. Elmo. Sorry. Oh. Yeah, that's right. When they show a young Elmo McElroy, you know, like you were tickled pink, weren't in, you? Oh, <laughs> oh my God! In what the sixties at that point, it would have been. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> oh, brilliant. But it does. It's definitely a Samuel L. Jackson role, and I do wonder how much of that was written, you know, with him in mind. Because, and that's with with a lot of these characters. It felt like it was written with the, the the specific actor in mind. Like, I don't know if anyone else could pull off this role as I, I, iconically as Samuel Jackson did. And I, and I realize saying icon about a, a cult classic film um, that didn't really do well at the box office. And some people didn't even know existed until probably this podcast. But it's one of those things where you put anyone else in a kilt running around trying to sell drugs. Um, it, it could come off as kitschy or just weird. But for some reason, and the fact that, you know, yes, other people made a thing of it, but he never did until like, you know, the, 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 the mid credit scene. Um, and then... You know, the fact that like, you know, you know, as the as they're going into the credits, like, you know, no one ever knew why he wore the kilt. Like, exactly. That's the point. Mm-hmm. Everyone else was like, why? Nice dress. Right. It's a kilt, first of all. You know, but, you know, it was just it was just there with no explanation. Yet no explanation was needed. And I think that's the beauty part of it. Yeah. I don't think uh, I don't think Sam Jackson ever has to answer for anything but it was a brilliant choice much in line with uh even the tarantino movie realm is Mm. that i found the music choices 
the choice of music, the songs that they picked mm-hmm. really helped carry the scenes. They they just were so perfect. It was just and it, it it's not even it's not even like the music carried the scene. It was like the scene just melded with the music. I will say, and I was going to save this point for later, but since we're since we're on this topic right now, I will say that you know the fact that this film, you know, the the script was written in '94, you know, and we mentioned that's you know rise of Tarantino era, you know, beginning of Guy Ritchie, you know, coming to um, to uh, the public notice with his work and all that, and then it took some time to you know get the financing and get this onto the screens. It felt to me like a 1996 film, but we released in 2001. Um, did it feel that way to you? Did it feel, you know, like you were, when you watch this film, does it feel like something that should have been in the 90s to you? You know what? I I, I don't know. I didn't have that feeling. Um, I don't feel that it was date stamped at all. Mm-hmm. What I do want to say about this movie though is the the caliber of the actors. Mm-hmm. I mean, not bad. If this is a, a one-off for the screenwriter mm-hmm. and- um, One of you the know, few North American films that Ronnie Yu directed. Right, directorial um, you know, d- debut? No, not? Not, no. De- not debut, no. No, but um, again, the, the caliber of the acting in this movie- the lineup of, of actors that they got on board, the everything was just so perfect. And I think um, I think time wise, it it yes, it might have been a little maybe late. Maybe it m- missed its mark. Maybe it would have been more better received mm-hmm. if it were mid nineties and and during that. Tarantino. Because uh, there were a lot of up, films around that, that, that yeah. 96, 97 era that really stood out. I mean, like that's, you know, that that is the train spotting era. That is the Reservoir Dogs and, you know, Pulp Fiction era. That is the, you know, the very bad things era. Like that, that era of films had. It was really dark. <laughs> was, exactly. What <laughs> was wrong with us in the 90s? <laughs> oh, yeah. Grunge. Um, <laughs> right. Yes. I mean, grunge was good, but we were getting into the boy band phase, you know, afterwards. And and that's the funny thing, too. Like you mentioned the soundtrack, you know, it's a very electronica trip hop kind of soundtrack, which, again, to me, kind of felt that way around like that 94 to 96, 97 era of CDs that were coming out. Um, you know, so it's, you know, it's definitely a movie of the time that it was written but I don't know if it was a movie of the time that was released. And I think had it gotten the funding sooner, it might have done better, not just in the critics' eyes, because, you know, if the critics are coming at this saying, well, this movie's five years too late, you know, they're already jaded going into it. Um, but it would have gotten more eyes. It definitely felt like a, like a mid to late 90s film as opposed to 2001. But, you know, we're hedging years, even though a lot can change in cinema in a couple of years. Like just a tenor of films. It's a really interesting point that I, again, it wasn't on my radar and it didn't feel like this movie was time stamped in any way. But then again, 
If you look at it, my movie collection, like it's a very carry movie. It's on VHS. It's on VHS. It's, that timestamps it already. Yeah. It's it's seven movies for seven days of the blockbuster. All right. Captain Marvel just crashed through the roof wow. of the blockbuster. Yeah, I did. I went there. I I kind of feel that, yeah. Yeah. By the way, if you were ever in a blockbuster video on a Friday night, you know. You know we gotta get there at five o'clock before everyone steals all the good new releases. And I think maybe that's <laughs> That's the key is that this would have definitely been one of my go go to movies for renting. Mm-hmm. You know, if I if I needed that seventh, this would be my seventh. I no, would throw it no, in every th- damn. This town. would have been your first and everything else fills out the seventh. <laughs> yeah. Like in the Justice League of seven movies in seven days, this is the Superman. Right. Very bad things might be, you know, the Batman, um, you know, throw in some other darker kind of maybe a Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction is the Wonder Woman. And then like, yeah, like maybe someone's weird stand up comedy special. That's freaking Aquaman. (laughs) That's your seven movies for seven days. Now, there's there's a there's a Twitter thing right there. You know, if you're if you're doing a, a seven movie, seven days, but you're equaling them to the Justice League seven. Which movie is your Superman? In seven movies for seven days, at the blockbuster. Ooh, good question. That is a very good question. Now I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna put that one on Twitter. I want, I want seriously think about it. You know, put yourself in that, you know, mid to late '90s, early 2000 era when blockbuster was the right. You got to pick seven movies, right, and you kind of rank them by superheroes. First of all, Aquaman is number seven. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Now, I have a question about the rules and regulations. Aquaman f***s a fish. Okay. Uh, <laughs> now, are these are these movies of the time released within, what, 95 to 2002? Or are they, like, overall I movies will, I ever? will give you a 2005 cutoff. Anything okay. before 2005 does not qualify. So it's got to be before 2005. Right, because that's that's pretty much like the death knell blockbuster right there. Like 2005, it started to go downhill, right? Because no one, no one, no one went to blockbuster after 2005, except for like that one down in the state that's still there. If it's still there, let's get back to the breakdown though. Robert Carlyle, Mr. Felix D'Souza. Um, I really, really enjoyed him in this. This was another one of those situations where the character really felt like it was written based on the actor who actually played the role. How was Robert Carlyle to you? He was absolutely perfect. I loved him. I loved him so much. He was he was absolutely brilliant. He <laughs> didn't give a sh- <laughs> 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 He oh my god, he you know what? In this role, I could not have seen anyone else play that, like that character. Mm-hmm. He had, he was pivotal. He had to be there. He, yeah, he was brilliant. And to be able to have a good back and forth with Samuel L. Jackson, like in a, in a movie where those two characters have zero f- given, in a movie that's giving clearly 180 f- Yeah, we counted. I was counting, right? But, you know, he brings that, you know, nothing's going to face him. All he wants to do is go to the Liverpool game. Just get to the game. Just get to the game. Just wants tickets to the game. That's all he cares about. Doesn't matter 
that, you know, he could be cut in on a $20 million deal. Doesn't matter that, you know, the love of his life just put a bullet in his ass. Yeah. Doesn't matter, right? That all this crap is going on. That his 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 car is totaled. He's driving a smoke spewing jalopy. He's you know watching some guy you know some guy some American in a kilt, you know driving golf balls off the garbage scow that they're stuck on because they just you know escaped like near death. Like so much going on. I just, I just want to go to the game. I just need tickets to the game. Like. Uh, again, it's Liverpool, Manchester United, so you know I understand it. <laughs> you know I do. I understand. However, right? It's just he brought so much to that role, and again, I wouldn't be surprised if it was written based on him because he was in Train Spotting, and Train Spotting was you know came out in 1994. If my math is correct, so if you think that that came out in '94 and um, the script was written in 1994, it makes sense that it might have been influenced by Robert Carlyle, at least that character influenced by Robert Carlyle from Trainspotting, because it almost feels like a continuation of that character, you know, and still based on drugs. Mm -hmm. I I couldn't see any other actor playing that character. And um, I think what I love about him, about his delivery, is he, he is, he's just so carefree. I mean, bad happening around him and he is he just wants to get to the game and he's so funny like but unintentionally funny it's not like you know he'll deliver a line and wait for the laugh no no it it's like deliver the line and move on but just in how he played it Mm -hmm. was so so funny for such a bad guy a bad guy good guy he's you know, he just wants to go he's, to the he game. He just wants to go to the game. Just wants to go watch Liverpool. Yeah. He was definitely tailor-made for that character, or that mm-hmm. character was tailor-made for him. But I'm curious, and I want to jump over to Meatloaf in this one, the lizard. Ronnie Yu had called the casting of him inspired. Oh? Yeah. I don't know how I feel about meatloaf in this um by the way uh rest in peace meatloaf but yeah i love you man yeah he is a very very good actor but there was just something missing and it's it's not him i it, it, maybe it's the character maybe it's the fact that it was written in a way that you know i mean his character talks in the third person through the whole damn movie right like why his character has these scars on his face. Why? Like, there's so much that we need to know about the lizard, but it's not there. He's just almost like this, you know, generic problem that's chasing Elmo around. Is it the script or is it me? I, I think it's you. I think it's you because I am here to defend the lizard. You are here to defend the lizard. The lizard is my king. He is the lizard king. <laughs> Let's hear him sing. Um, he would do anything for love, but not that. But not that. Um, no, he would talk. He would not. He would not talk about himself in the third person. That's what that is. Okay. I really, really liked him. I liked that he. I think everything that you're saying uh, about his delivery. I almost enjoyed more. He did seem to be a bit bumbling. 
mm-hmm. right? Um, for, you know, um, a hardcore hitman mafioso, like what? He was like, he was, was a, he was the leader. There was a quirkiness to him, though. There was. Right? You know, like, they're trying to steal my Elmo, like. And it kept it light. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I didn't, I didn't know if he, if it, if he needed to be more crazy, because of the way some of the dialogue was written. Maybe the some of the dialogue needed to be changed. Like, no, like, the fact like, that like he Meatloaf was... is a phenomenal actor. And keep in mind, this is two years after Fight Club came out, where yeah. he gave, you know, arguably a scene stealing performance in that. He was low key crazy. Mm-hmm. He was low key crazy, and I think that was perfect. The fact that he was addressing himself in the third person and he and that was how he spoke. That really made sense to me, to the role. I think it was it was all necessary and he delivered it beautifully. Maybe it's because and here's here's I think the comparison point, right? If the lizard is a little off the wall, a little crazy, a little maniacal, a little bit of, you know, dangerous, right? He doesn't feel that way in comparison to Reciphons in this, who is way over the top, who is way like, yeah. like, like Icky is, is that kind of character that's just so manic and maniacal. And it's almost like I wanted that out of the lizard, no. but, but you can't have that going up against each other. Okay. Here's the thing, right? With the lizard, I think portraying that. He's kind of towing down the middle line, right? He can either go crazy mm-hmm. and just fly off the wall and f- it, kill kill McElroy, mm-hmm. or that turning moment where he's like, "No, I want him alive." You know, it, it's and you know, even about wiping um, the slate clean, mm-hmm. right? It's like. I think the people around him are are genuinely scared because he can fly off so quickly, or I think they ha- he has like a genuine. I don't know if 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 those around him find him to be a pushover, and that's why they're following suit, or if they're scared for their life, like because he he does he has quite a large, um, he has a large cartel. Mm-hmm. You know, he has a large following. Well, ha- oh, had until they got blown up. Well, okay. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. Spoilers. Might I moot an idea with you? Moot away. <laughs> Allow me to moot an idea here. Take Meatloaf and Resiphons in this and their delivery of these characters. Now, picture it with those roles swapped. And, nope. meat- and Meatloaf is icky. With the delivery that he gave to the lizard. And Reese Eifens is the lizard with the delivery that he gave to Icky. Nope. No, nope. eh? No, no, no. See, again, uh, no. I, I think... <laughs> just no. Just no. Your the, idea is moot. <laughs> the, lizard, the lizard had to be more down the line, right? Because you never know which side he's going he's gonna to favor. Right, mm. he's either going to go crazy and half cocked and kill them all, or, you know, no, like he may just let you live if, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if if you step out of line and go up against him. 
I, and I, I think that was that was really pivotal. It was really important to um, Emily Mortimer's uh, character. Emily Mortimer was wonderful in this, but before we, before we get to her, okay, I do need to point this out, and I, it needs to be said because it's just one of those like you know like the, those fascinating little dinks you find sometimes in movies. So in this movie with Resiphons, Meatloaf plays the lizard. In The Amazing Spider-Man, Resiphons plays Dr. Kirk Connors, who becomes the lizard. That is literally like one degree of separation to a Spider-Man villain at that point. So he goes from starting with the lizard to being the lizard. Now let's get to Emily Mortimer. <laughs> You're like, yeah, okay, that's 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 nice geek boy. Let's move on to Emily Mortimer. Um, but not the same lizard. No, not in, the same lizard. It just no. happens to be, you know, Meatloaf's character is named the lizard. And then Reese Hyphens goes into a movie where his character is the lizard, which is an d- entirely different character. Just same name. No, you know, Meatloaf is not changing into an actual lizard in this. No. He has both his arms. Well, till the end of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. But I'll let you guys all... Watch that. Watch well, you already movie. watched it. You, you paused the podcast and you came back to us. You already know what happened, right? And if you didn't, go ahead, pause now. And welcome back to the show. I'm so glad you enjoyed the movie. <laughs> yeah, we went there again. Um, Emily Mortimer. There was just something so... <sighs> she really played the duality of this character so well. Because she isn't like a cold-blooded killer yet she is a cold-blooded killer yet she still has feelings for felix yet she will shoot felix in the ass if he gets in her way like there's so much duality to her but it she didn't feel overplayed like Siphons was very much over the top meatloaf could have been more over the top but you think he was perfect in the role emily mortimer um was almost like the she was the adult in the room of everyone, mm-hmm. right? And I think she was great in this. Oh, yeah. And I mean, you know, her story, too, that she just wanted to, she just wanted to get out of it. Mm-hmm. She wanted freedom. And this would be technically her last job, um, you know, honoring her her debts to, uh, to the lizard. Um, oh, my God. You know what? She was brilliant. And she really... Um, you know, even I love the scene with, uh, with her and, um, and, and D'Souza's mom. Mm -hmm. Oh, that was so good. Right. That was so good. (laughs) That was so good because there was that turnabout where you could tell that even, you know, the mom, as much as she, she tried to, you know, play the M&M card and the, the hard exterior shell she really did like her to the core yeah you know and because uh, she is a sweet girl on the inside even though she will straight up stone cold kill you well i mean she's good at what she does right she doesn't she shouldn't be faulted for that uh if if you're gonna be you know a hit man or woman you want to be good at your job because uh your life might just depend on it no one hires the hitman right although that being said i now want to write a script called the hitman oh Wait, wasn't that the bodyguard? Maybe. Hmm. Also starring Samuel L. Jackson, but not in a kilt. But this one, this movie is not that bad. It's not that bad. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and Emily Mort- uh, Mortimer pay- played an amazing, 
amazing role in this. It's almost an inspired choice to put her in this as well. Because when you think about the movies that were uh, that were coming out around that time that she was in, uh, you had Love's Labor's Lost, uh, The Kid that had uh, Bruce Willis in it, and Lovely and Amazing. So these are more heartfelt, rom com kind of, you know, sappy type films. And then to jump into this role, like, if you think in 2001, you know, like, I need a badass, sexy um, assassin. Who are you casting in 2001? Emily Mortimer may not have been on the top of the list. 2001 was probably like Angelina Jolie. But uh, it's, I don't know if I could picture anyone else doing as well as she did but in she, this role. She was able to deliver the the accent, I think, mm. for the role that was absolutely perfect. It was absolutely perfect. I mean, and it is, I think at the heart of it, it is kind of a comedy. And Emily Mortimer, like, in some of the things that she's been in, like, if you ever watched her in 30 Rock, she, you know, she was hilarious in that. Um, you know, it's, it's not an action film. You know, it's very much a, you know, darker, not dark, but, you know, darker themed, darker, darker world kind of comedy. Um, but she was brilliant. And it's, I hate to say it, the fact that it was out in 2001 meant that we got Emily Mortimer in this role. If this came out in 96, 97, maybe she's not in it. Interesting, you know, thought process on that one. I have to bring up Blowfish. Not Hootie. Blowfish. Stephen Walters. The main skinhead in this. There was just something so punchably likable about this character because he did he got he he got the crap end of everything in this but it was just such a an over the top needed to have his <clears throat> he needed to be told in this film a few times and it was just it was just so funny every time he was on the screen every time he was on the screen it was a laugh although i will admit I will admit I, I felt bad for him and his, his cronies during the, uh, did they just eat Taco Bell scene? <laughs> um, it's, if you can mentally smell the crap that was coming out of them, it wouldn't have been good. Okay, but in that scene, I think the monkeys stole <laughs> Oh the my God, show. yes, absolutely. The look on the monkey's face. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I think... Can I just put a star um, honorable mention VIP to the animal trainers who worked <laughs> with the monkeys? <laughs> because it was so good. Let's get to Ronnie Yu on this one here, the director. Um, there were a lot of cuts and speed ramps in this film um, that really did, again, kind of feel... You know, uh, like a movie of the times, like that kind of reality bites go kind of film. Um, did that throw you off at all when you were watching this? No, I think stylized or style wise, um, this movie was perfect with the way it was shot. Um, those little cutaway scenes really added to, and again, maybe it was, um, you know, very akin to the time. Um, the train spotting vibe. Um, 
another movie that popped into my mind was um, um, Boondock Saints. Mm. And just how it's it's really the little extras that's thrown in that make the movie, that make the scene. Which, for the record, and we discovered this while we were watching uh, Formula 51, Boondock Saints, judging by the tomatometer, actually qualifies for an episode Ooh, on this yeah. podcast. So we will eventually be bringing the Boondock Saints to this show. Uh, not actually on this show, although that would be fascinating. I would love to have an actor from a movie that we're talking about come on and actually you know, talk about the movie themselves and get that kind of inside experience. Maybe somewhere down the road we'll get that experience, which would be just be phenomenal. Dear Mr. Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> Kilt optional. Come on down and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk Formula 51. And, and that's one of the things, too. Like, when you think about these smaller movies, and in the grand scheme of, you know, Samuel L. Jackson's filmography, this is arguably a smaller movie. But these are the movies I think that maybe, and maybe I'm wrong on this one, but maybe, but actors seem to have more fun on these smaller passion projects than when dealing with, you know, big budget King Kong level type films because there's just so many moving pieces attached to a movie like like a King Kong or an Avengers. Here, I think you're right. I think it, it's, it felt like, you know, people, actors and crew and director having fun with the film. Absolutely. I think there's a scene that Robert Carlyle goes into just a, a, a pub. Mm-hmm. He uh, he makes a stop by the pub and... Uh, in Manchester, no less. He, a Liverpool flare. fan. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know what? It's that kind of genuine fun that I think makes this movie so likable. Which, if you don't understand why a Liverpool fan going into a Manchester United fan you know like into a factory pub right all you have to do is look up the show football factories and just see the depth of soccer hooliganism like that that's that's a bold move right there and i think that's probably also too maybe why the film didn't play so well on this side of the atlantic like we saw it debuted at number two in the UK, that makes sense. Here, there's a lot of UK references. And I don't know if that necessarily played out for a North American audience. I mean, we love it, but we also have a little bit of British in our background. You I know? think, I think though, script-wise, it was funny. Because mm-hmm. um, Felix was so hating of everything American <laughs> in everything he said in the dialogue, even before he, uh, he met up with McElroy, like he hated everything that was outside of, of his, uh, his neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in the end though, you know, I have to, I have to put it out here, right. You know, going back to the, to the tomatometer in this one, or even the Metacritic score, like if, if, Someone told you after watching this film that only, you know, around 25% of the critics actually liked this film. Um, What would your response be? The critics are wrong yet again. 
this move. You know what? Again, um, is it everyone's cup of tea? No. no. And I can I can absolutely um, respect that. That no, f- them. <laughs> maybe it's maybe it is a bit of a niche audience. Um, I I don't know. I just I love this movie so much that I can't possibly if okay taking aside the fact that I love Tarantino movies I loved Train Spotting and Full Monty and I love and, movies and, and you have a copy of Go which I, which I think right. also kind of is up there as well as far as comparison pieces go Boondock Saints mm-hmm. I do love those movies and that's kind of my jam right maybe I wouldn't be so passionate if I were defending the Lord of the Rings no disrespect no disrespect but, but, you know, but this is my jam. So let me go with this. So I can appreciate that not everyone sees and enjoys that style of movie the way I do. Mm-hmm. I get it. They're wrong. It's cool. But, you know, we'll move on. Live and let live. <laughs> However, um, all joking aside, even just to watch this movie, to sit down, put all expectations aside. A, it has a spot on cast, right? Each one of the actors, there is not a single actor that I'm sitting there like, meh, that could have been recast. That, you know, I think so-and-so could have played it better. No, there's none of that. It's fun. If you just suspend belief <laughs> for the two hours that you can sit and enjoy this movie, enjoy the humor in in the dialogue, the um, the presentation of the dialogue, right? <laughs> the actors are having fun with their roles. Like, how could you not enjoy it as well mm-hmm. and just j- jump on the ride and, and enjoy... And, you know, like, is it, is it realistic? Is it plausible? Mm, Mm -hmm. Probably not. I mean, you know what? Just enjoy it for what it is. Take it lightly because they sure ain't taking it seriously. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and just have fun with it. It's a fun movie. It is time. So Carrie, who is your MVP of Formula 51. Okay, I have to say that we did not give Rice Ivans his due credit. And he is, without a doubt, I am so sorry, Mr. Jackson. I have to give full props. Um, my MVP is, uh, is Icky. <laughs> uh, he was... Oh, wow. He was, he was brilliant. He is so great. He's so great in that role. And actually, funny enough, it wasn't until I was flipping through to see what else he's been in and realized he was that, he was the, the, he was the loft made in Notting Hill. Mm-hmm. He, <laughs> and where he came out with the, the scuba gear, you know, that is just, that is the role fit for him like to be the completely way out there way off the so so reef Ifens is your mvp he is my mvp i will admit i i i was tossing this one up 
And for a bit, I was going to say Emily Mortimer. But then I had to change my mind. She still she still gets honorable mention in this one. She was good. She was very good. But she was no Robert Carlyle. Uh-huh. Felix D'Souza. There's just... In a movie where you have Reese Eifens jumping up and down on chairs and Samuel L. Jackson running around Manchester in a kilt, Robert Carlyle is the one that made this movie for me. He was so perfect for the movie, perfect for the role, perfect for the scene, perfect for the time. Like There could be no other person that could pull this off, stand toe-to-toe, with Samuel Jackson in this role and just the movie benefits from him and his presence and his performance in every single way. You know who was good as well was his partner in crime. Um, the um, Oh, the guy who had like the, the, the chemist killed? The baddie, yeah. yeah who, who, who who didn't make it past the shooting. Right. Right. <laughs> But I thought he was really he was, good, too. He was disqualified. He didn't have enough screen time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that is Formula 51 for all of you. Now, first of all, Carrie, thank you for joining me on this one again. This has been always so much fun. And to you, the listeners, if there is a movie that you think is unfairly maligned or you think is just so bad that there is no way that we can come up with anything good to say about it, hit us up on Twitter at NotThatBadCast. Thank you so much for listening to this show uh, wherever you get your podcast. This is It's Not That Bad. Until next time, I'm Jay. She's Carrie. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.